Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Man, thank you, Eric, and happy birthday. (laughs) And happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you out there, or as Jason Smith calls it, Easter Sunday. (laughs) Okay, that's because Jason's wearing a suit and a tie. There you go. Here it is. It's a... Other things to talk about today, some which will, some of these things will be a little bit of a a struggle for us today. Uh, In fact, thank you, Cody, because this is perfect. I was talking to Cody about about this this picture that he has sketched for us today. This is the hand of God. And it reaches into the chaos of life. Now up here, there's the dream of God that is is much more ordered, but it is the the chaos of life. And have we seen some chaos this week, you think? We have. We've seen some chaos this week in New Zealand and in other places, and, and you have brought some of your own chaos into the sanctuary with you today. And the point of the sermon today, I'm going to give it to you at the beginning. You have to stay to the end, though, okay? I'm going to give it to you, though. That the promise comes to us in moments of chaos. The promise is ours even when there is chaos, a dangerous kind of chaos. The promise of God, that God will win, is still ours in moments of chaos even if you don't live to see it. So yeah, I mean, when you have the promise of God and you hear me say things like I've said not too long ago when I put these uh, charts and graphs in front of you and I say, look, the world is getting better. God is trustworthy. The dream of God is taking shape. And and it kind of depends on where you sit, I understand. But for a lot of people in the world, things are in fact getting better and God is good and God should be praised and we should trust that God is doing a good thing in and through us and amongst us and other places in the world. And then you have Christ Church in New Zealand. Then you have Christchurch in New Zealand, and you have car accidents, and you have 
cancer. And, and, and I am asking you, you hear me, right? And maybe, like me, at times it's hard for you to juxtapose, to lay alongside the promises of God these other issues of such deep and great chaos. Maybe it's hard to trust the promise when there is all of this chaos. Can this be possible when all I see is this? When all I see is this, this is where faith happens. Sight happens up here. Sight hap faith happens down there. So what do we do with these tragedies and the promises of God? What, what do we do when we hear the promises of God and then our screens show us tragedy? How does that, how does that affect the way that we receive the promise of God? You're familiar with the pinky swear, aren't you? Another way to ask this question is this. How, how do we respond, what does it do to our faith when we feel like we've gotten a really good, solid pinky swear from God that things are going to be okay? Uh, I did a little research, because this is what pastors do, into the origin story of the pinky swear. <laughs> it is said that the pinky promise or the pinky swear originated in Japan, where it is known as yubikuri, which means finger cut off. <laughs> This is because in Japan, the person that broke the pinky swear had to cut off their pinky finger. Amen. Man, but the passage you're going to read today is God saying, I'll cut myself before I'll fail where my promises are concerned. Man. Lent is a season of promises. Now, it starts with a pretty morbid promise, if you remember, <laughs> here up front. You're going to return to dust. And then it continues with your promises, Lenten observances, decisions to deny yourself, to take something up, perhaps, and it moves us to and through Holy Week when the promises of Christ are on full display. But all of this happens against the backdrop of an even larger promise. Larger than the scene of the cross and the resurrection. That God would redeem and restore all of creation in and through the people of God and the person of God in Christ. The importance of the cross and the resurrection chapter cannot be overstated, but it is still a chapter in a larger forward-moving story that begins in really important ways with this person, Abram. With Abram. Now, our passage is Genesis 15, but in order to hear Genesis 15 the way that we need to hear it, you kind of have to go backwards a little bit. In fact, you have to go all the way back to chapter 11. The end of chapter 11, this is a picture here of, of Abram, and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, who would someday become Abraham and Sarah. This is actually a picture of their family tree. <laughs> harsh, a little bit too harsh for the crowd this morning. Sensitive spring break churchgoers today, all right. <laughs> the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now, Sarai was barren, and she had no child. No child, which in that context meant no future. 
which in that context meant that somehow you were cursed. This was a bad thing. This is probably the worst on the list of things that could happen to you. No child was amongst the worst things that could ever happen to you. And I'm sure that Abram and Sarai felt it. Abram at 75 years of age. Sarai at 70 years of age. Have you seen it? I've seen it. We've felt it. It is a devastating sort of pain to not have a child when you desperately want a child. And again, in their context, if people had to look at them and say, because, and at the time, Abram and Sarai were functioning members of a different faith group, a different theology altogether, a competing theology, a fertility cult, a fertility cult. So what must it have meant to Abram and Sarai to not be able to have a child? This is why, in the very next chapter, when a voice, a foreign voice, intrudes and intervenes in Abram's life and says, look, I just want you to trust me. <laughs> I mean, lots of other words were said, but hear me say this. I just want you to trust me. The voice said to Abram, if you'll just trust me and go that way, I'll do something for you. I'll do something in and through you. Go from your country. Now we think that Abram by this time in Sarai, there's all kinds of evidence, scriptural and otherwise, that Abram and Sarai had lots of stuff, were wealthy people, even powerful people because they had so much stuff and so many people around them. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Guys, what I'm about to read you is one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Uh, yep, all the verses of scripture are important. But really, this one is, is crucially important because this one is where we start to get our understanding of ourselves as a reflection of God and what it is that we're called to do and to be. God said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and anyone who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Man. And so old man Abram and old woman Sarai hear in this promise from this nebulous voice a promise for a child and for the hope of a child. They follow God pretty blindly. Now, they are not given specifics. They're not given specifics. Wouldn't it be easier if God said, hey, I have mapped out the next several months and years of your life, and here is a step-by-step -step instruction manual as to where you're going to be these particular dates in the future. We don't ever get that. What we get is Go this way. I'll tell you what you need to know. Go this way. I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. Ah, God, I'm not wired like that. Sorry. I'm going to need some specificity. I'm a planner. God says, you'll be fine. <laughs> Go. 
something for you if you'll go. Do you realize that Abram, who will come to be known as Abraham, is the, we, we understand him as the father of faith? And not just our tradition, but three different traditions understand Abraham to be the father of faith? In fact, in Scripture, the New Testament, Abraham is put up in front of us as a model of faith. A model of faith. And I would submit to you, if you read Scripture honestly, and I highly recommend that you read Scripture honestly, this model of faith is chronically human. Chronically, unmistakably, inescapably normal. Here's what I mean. This great man of faith undertakes to move his entire life to follow the voice at the beginning of chapter 12. And by the end of chapter 12, he has failed miserably (laughs) and put people at risk, including his wife, because he fails to trust the voice in that moment. Here's what God does. God chooses him again. In the aftermath of Abram's failure that put other people at risk, God responds by saying, I'm going to take you still. Follow me. Chapter 13 is a good chapter for Abram, the man of faith, because he gets out there and he has all of his stuff. In fact, he has so much stuff, and Lot has so much stuff, they are now aware that they can't be in the same patch of ground. The ground won't support Abram and all his stuff and Lot and all of his stuff. And so God says to Abram, you're fine. Just trust me. And so Abram, because he trusts God, says to Lot, tell you what, you go one direction, I'll go the other. Doesn't matter which direction you choose, you just choose. Lot looks up and says, this, this land is great. I mean, look, all of these, these fine eating and watering establishments and all of these things. I'm going to take this land over here, which leaves Abram with this over here. And God said, it's okay. It's okay. Take what's left. It'll be plenty. Abram does. Stupid Lot gets himself in trouble in chapter 14. In fact, gets himself abducted by four enemy kings. Now, there were five sympathetic kings who went to try to rescue Lot and to get back all the stuff that the enemy kings had stolen, but they couldn't do it. But Abraham, who had 318 trained fighters, went, rescued Lot, brought all of the stuff back, (laughs) brought all of the stuff back, handed everything back, and when they tried to pay him for it, Abram said, I'm rich, that doesn't help me. Keep it, because what Abram wants is a kid. Now, Since the time of the first promise, many years have passed. So we can't blame Abram if he's getting a little bit raw about this promise stuff, which is what I think we see in chapter 15. Okay, go to this promised land. Go to this promised land, and on this promised land, I will finally give you a child. So after all of this, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abram. Abram says, I'm not afraid. I am your shield. Abram kind of is thinking, I'm kind of be my own shield. I got 318 guys. We're pretty good at this. Your reward shall be very great. I already turned down the spoils of my victory. I don't need much. We think, in other words, that this was something of a contentious conversation between God and Abram. Because the promise has tarried so long that Abram is starting to wonder if he heard it correctly or if this voice is actually reliable. So Abram, in verse 2, complains. Lord God, what are you going to give me? I remain, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram, in my head, now starts to point at God, says, you have given me nothing, no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir? Verse 4, but the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue, in other words, from your body, shall be your heir. And then this. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars, if you can. (laughs) If you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Now, this is the way we typically understand the sky to look when God dragged Abram outside to look at the stars. In other words, hear this, we sometimes read this story as if it's saying, look, you can't count all of the stars that you can see. I'm going to bless you like that. But there is really good evidence that when God dragged Abram outside, let's say of a tent, to look up at the stars, there's really good evidence that it was not night. Huh. What if it was in broad daylight, you know, like today? In other words, if I were to send Patrick Carr outside right now to say, Patrick, get out there and count those stars. Patrick would come back in and he would say, I don't see any stars. But are they up there? Yeah. Now, we don't know exactly the extent of Abram's understanding of the heavens and how things work, right? We don't know exactly whether he understood that these were gaseous bodies out there. We don't know. We do think he had lived enough days to recognize that day gives way to night, which gives way to day, which gives way to night. He probably had seen enough sunrises and sunsets to see that probably, probably the stars are always there, but the light hides them. And so here's what we think. We think God dragged Abram outside in the broad, bright daylight and said, take a look at those stars. 
How many stars do you see? Only to have Abram look up and say, I, I don't see any stars. But I know that they're there. In other words, God asks Abram, and I think God's asking John, me, and you, this question. Do you only trust the promise when you can see the evidence? Or do you trust the God who makes the promise? It wasn't, we don't think, that God gave him incalculable evidence, <laughs> more stars than he could count. We think that God says, hey, what you don't see, I can see. Do you trust what I can see, or are you only going to trust what you can see? Hey, church, as it has to do with the promises of God, that things <laughs> all belong to God, that God is at work via the resurrection, restoring and repairing and mending the world. Are you only going to believe it because you see it or because God said it? And remember, believing happens not just with your brain, but with your body. Yeah, but John, Christ Church in New Zealand, I know. I know. John, cancer. Yeah. I know. I know. I mean, our eyes, our eyes, seems like on a daily basis and sometimes on the screens and sometimes in real life, Tell us the chaos reigns. Well, then what, if, if this is what you believe, well, that tells me a lot about the shape of your faith. I mean, honestly, are you only gonna believe what you can see or are you gonna trust in the character of the God who makes the promise? Abram believed what God, see, what God saw even when he couldn't see it. Trusted God's character and God called that, and I love the way Brittany read that today, God called this righteousness, right relatedness to God when I can trust what God says despite what my eyes see. The scripture says, stuff that you can see, we call that Sight. Stuff that you can't see, we call that faith. Are you, am I, are we people of faith? Are we with our bodies believing that God has won, is winning, will win? God goes on to say, all right, not only will you have a child, not only will you have a child, but you're going to have a place to live. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abram still protests, okay, God, but how do I know? Now, having heard what we've just heard, God did not give him evidence that he could see. God gave him God. 
God's going to do that again. In response to Abram's question, God says, strangely enough, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. He brought uh, him all these, and he cut them in two, laying each half over against the other, so he made a bloody path. Sheesh. But he didn't cut the birds in two. Verse 12 As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Well, yeah. Because it kind of feels like and looks like and seems like right here that maybe Abram has tested and pushed God and questioned God and doubted God one too many times. Because isn't that what we've kind of thought along the way? Like what happens to good Nazarene kids when they test God? Oh, God eventually is going to have enough of that. Right? And so God speaks to Abram within Abram's frame of reference. We don't believe that this is some sort of a magical religious ceremony. We think this is sort of a run-of-the-mill ceremony that had some life outside of religious thinking. We think this was sort of terms of surrender or maybe a, a public ceremony that obligated one party to another. Maybe there was a financial debt. I don't know what it is. But this would have been a familiar recipe for Abram. He understands this to be a way that a public, care, a public ceremony establishing a covenant takes place. When a stronger party takes a weaker party by the nap of the neck and says, okay, you see this bloody path that we've just built here? Sorry about your animals. You see this bloody path? If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, one step, two step, three steps, fourth step will be you, buddy. If you do not hold up your end of the bargain, you will be the next step in this bloody path. That's the way it always happened. The weaker party would stand at the front of this bloody gauntlet. The stronger party would perhaps even physically grab them, announce the terms of the agreement, and then force him, force her, force them to walk this bloody path. And then everybody would be witness to this agreement. Everybody would understand. If he, if she, if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, Death is what's next. So can you blame Abram for this deep and terrifying darkness? So Abram shows up for the ceremony. And he's ready to walk. The terms were announced. They were odd. And just before Abram can take that first step, believing that he was the one grabbed by the nap of the neck by God himself. God shows up, maybe just to increase the pressure, right? God shows up, shows up. It's a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, dangerous utensils, right? God shows up. Looks like God's gonna bully him down this path. And just before Abram takes the first step, man, I hope you're listening and not on Facebook. <laughs> this is huge. Just before Abram was to take that first step, God slides in front of Abram and God walks the bloody path, God's self. And, and, God never did make Abram walk that bloody path. God says, I'm gonna promise you something. 
I'm going to promise you something. Abram pushes back and says, I don't know if I can trust your promises. God says, all right, then we need a ceremony. Abram must have felt that in his gut, like, oh, God's going to, oh, okay, go get me a heifer, a ram and a goat. God says, in response to Abram's doubts, I will cut myself before I will fail you in this promise. Does that sound familiar at all? That God would risk God's own self to demonstrate the depth of God's commitment to God's people. Here it is. This is a verse that when I was telling my class this morning, when I was 25, it all came apart. And this is one of the verses that helped pull it all back together for me. And I had a different household of faith, different foundation, different everything, different definitions of success. This is one of those verses. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. Before I move on, here's what I want to say. We rightly, rightly emphasize the need to make commitments, covenantal commitments to God. That's the right thing. So long as we understand, <laughs> so long as we understand that God's covenantal commitments to us do more than our covenantal commitments to God. And in the moments that I or you, that we fail, that does not change God's commitments to us. The basis of your faith cannot be, cannot be, that you're afraid that God will punish you if you fail, and so you don't. The basis of your faith must be that when you fail, God still chooses you. It is St. Patrick's Day. Welcome to St. Patrick's Day at Oklahoma City First Church. Thank you for wearing green. That's why Jason is full regalia today, because he had a green tie, but no green shirts. St. <laughs> Patrick was human trafficked. Maybe you know this already. He's not actually Irish. He was abducted from his home on the coast of what we would call England forced to work as a slave in these wild lands that we now understand to be Ireland. An Irish warlord grabbed him, grabbed him out of his home, grabbed him out of his life, where, by the way, he was at the university studying philosophy and theology, studying the big promises of God, right? Studying the big promises of God, and then in something that was probably not included in scripture, an Irish warlord rips him out of his home and forces him to live without clothes for years at a time, tending sheep, always under the threat of death. If we come back here and you're not here tending these sheep and if the sheep aren't doing well, if you have done something other than what we told you to do, then you will die slowly, horrifically. So he lived this way for years and years until he finally summoned the courage to escape and he did. He escaped, he got all the way back home and after he got home, 
he started having dreams, and he felt like it was Jesus in his dreams who was telling him to go back to Ireland. And so his parents tried to lock him up. You're crazy. You've been damaged by your experience. We're not going to let you do this. You just can't do it. He had to escape his home to follow the call of Christ. And got back on a boat and went back to Ireland, walked straight up to the warlord who had taken him out of his home in the first place, (laughs) fell on his knees in front of this warlord and said, you made me serve you before, but my God calls me to serve you now. According to legend, the warlord then falls on his knees and says, tell me more about this God. So he spent all that time at the university studying this large plan of God to redeem and restore did not necessarily include the part about Patricius, as he was known at the time, being ripped out of his home, his family being horrified, being forced, being tortured, being forced to serve over here. Probably didn't include all of that, right? But somehow, the larger promise of God so functioned in his mind and heart that he understood what he needed to do with his life, and he had to go back to the chaos Because that's where the promises are needed the most. And so he goes back to the chaos and changes a country because he was <laughs> committed to, covenantally committed to the things that God see, whether or not he could see them. And he knew God was trustworthy. with whether or not to end with this. I think I'm going to. There is a foundation out there called the Pinky Swear Foundation. There's a young man, let me make sure I get his name right. Mitch Chapokas, diagnosed with cancer at the age of nine. And he was in the pediatric, pediatric oncology unit receiving treatment, when he overheard a conversation, another family was having to kind of let the kids down easy and say, Christmas is not going to be quite what it's been in the past because, you know, these things are expensive. And so Mitch, hearing this, went to his dad and he said, we got to do something. And so young nine-year-old Mitch emptied every savings account that he had, and he probably came up with literally dozens of dollars. He counted up the number of patients in the oncology unit, parceled out that money in envelopes, and walked from room to room and handed out every last dollar he had to them. He said, this isn't fair. Hopefully this helps a little bit. Wasn't long after that that he got a very dark prognosis. And it was his dad who had to say to him, hey, probably not going to make it to Christmas. So Mitch said to his dad, promise me you'll raise money for these families anyway. Pinky swear. So that even if I don't see it with my own eyes, said Mitch, even if I don't see it with my own eyes, something good will happen. To this day, 
The Pinky Swear Foundation is raising a lot of money for those families whose children are in the oncology unit in New York. They've partnered now with the New York Yankees. They're raising a lot of money, doing exactly what Mitch and Mitch's dad promised that they would do. Mitch, who did pass away, did not have to see with his own eyes. what he knew would take place in and through the people around him. Abram did not have to see with his own eyes. Abram was promised lots and lots and lots of children, right? (laughs) Lots of children, was promised all this land. He did not ever realize the promised land during his lifetime. And while he was promised numbers and numbers, huge numbers of children like the sands of the seas and the stars of the sky. He saw Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael was when he kind of took matters into his own hands. But Abram believed what God could see more than he believed what he could see. Jesus during Holy Week, reached a point where he said, okay, God, I believe what you can see because I don't like what I can see. Lent, Lent, season of Lent is when we practice giving ourselves to what God would see despite what we can see. How are you doing? How are you doing? Good news. If your answer to how are you doing is not well, I think we've had however many days of Lent, like 10, and I've screwed up 11 times. (laughs) Good news. It is the testimony of our father of faith, Abraham. God chooses you anyway. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter that you don't have to keep these promises. What I'm saying is, when you don't keep your promises, God keeps God's promises to you. And at some point, perhaps for you, as it was for Abraham, that will grow you to a place of obedience and faithfulness that you never could have imagined. Do you trust what you can see? Or do you trust what God can see? If you're helping us to set this table today, come on down. Heavenly Father, bless these elements. Bless these elements, God. And with them, strengthen us to be your people. With them, God, strengthen us to trust your promises, your largest promises, even and perhaps especially when we can't see those promises come to fruition within our own lives or lifetimes, lifespans. With these elements, God strengthens to be people who will commit to the larger story. Measure us, God, not by our results, but by our faithfulness to your promises. And remember, to help us to remember that when we fail and when we break our end of the promise, 
Remind us, God, that you have not broken yours. Remind us, God, that your promise does more than our promises do. Remind us, God, of Abraham. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left, and to come forward with your hands cupped to receive these elements, tangible reminders of the faithfulness of God. You'll get up and you'll head towards somebody holding a plate of bread. As you approach, that person will snap off a piece, press it into your hands, and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it. Take it and dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then eat. Take into your person these resources that are meant to strengthen us all so that we can believe more and more in what God sees and less and less in what we see. I would ask you then to find a place to pray. Now, if you come to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing, and somebody will meet you there, anoint you with oil, and pray that prayer. If you come to one of these front mourners benches, we won't assume a thing, but we will at some point put you on the back, the neck, the shoulder to let you know that you are not alone. Pastor, you and your family, if you could go to that altar over there, we will gather around you and pray with you. You can circle right back around and pray at your seat. That's fine too. But please pray. Please pray that God would show you how to go about believing more and more and more in what God sees. Who is eligible to come to this table? All of you who understand your need for grace, that's it. If you understand your need for grace, nothing else matters. You're welcome here. That's it. If you can't come to us, Jason and Katie will come to you. Perhaps you want to take a special trip here and touch the waters of baptism to remember the moment of your baptism. It was on the night that was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it, remember me. In the same way, he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant and every time you drink of it, remember me. All around the sanctuary now, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pews to the left and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God.